Well, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to walk our way through this entire chapter today. Um, and uh, we're going to read through this chapter with the question in mind of this. Do you ever get angry or frustrated with God when your hopes and dreams don't work out like you planned? Do you ever get frustrated or angry with God when your hopes and your dreams don't work out like you planned? I do. I bet you do as well. And maybe we, may, we may know that we're frustrated and angry with God, or we may just feel this tension or this, this, this emotion with, with God. But how we respond in that moment says a lot about us and how we view God and how we view our relationship with God. And so do you ever get angry or frustrated with God when your plans for your life, maybe little ones, maybe great big ones, don't work out the way that you planned them to go? We all have plans for our lives. Plans give us a sense of purpose in our life. When we have plans, I've got somewhere I'm moving, somewhere I'm going, something I'm working towards. But we've all faced those moments when uh, plans are met with the harsh reality that it's not going to work out that way. And those interruptions can be hard on us, hard on your heart, hard on your minds. And yet, when you read the Bible, we are encouraged to approach our plans with a sense of humility. Uh, some of you know our friend Ted Skiles, uh, missionary in Taiwan for years and years and years. I love talking to Ted because every time he says he's going to go do something, he always adds a little caveat from the verse I'm going to show you, Lord willing. Right? We're going to go do that tomorrow, Lord willing. And he always says it, no matter what, what you're talking about. We're going to have breakfast tomorrow, Lord willing. Right? Big things, little things, right? But he does it because James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, says this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? Well, you're a, vist, a mist excuse me, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And so Ted and, and us are invited to approach not, not planning. It's not, James isn't about, but don't make plans. He just says, bring some humility to it. And so we all have plans, whether they're stated or just assumed, about how life will go or what will happen in the future. But most of us wrestle with the frustrations or the emotions of plans that don't pan out like we thought or hoped they would. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 brings us face to face with a, a biblical character by the name of David. And David's a famous guy in the Bible. Right? He slayed Goliath, was king, was, uh, did a lot of things. Right? Had some infamous failures in his life as well. But David, uh, in 2 Samuel 7, uh, it begins, it's just a pretty calm chapter. David's at peace. Um, it says, as we're going to read here in a moment, that uh, there were no wars to fight. Everybody around him, he kind of made peace with all of the surrounding kingdoms. His kingdom was well, his palace had been built, and everything seems to be going well. And so David makes a plan, but it's a plan that doesn't get carried out the way he thought it was going to. And so it's a, it's a chapter that really begins rather calmly. It's just giving us a nice story. By the end of it, you have one of the most significant chapters in the Bible, because there's this covenant 
that is given in the midst of this conversation between David and God that begins and it goes throughout the rest of the Bible. And it has incredible impact for what we celebrate here at Christmas time when we think about Jesus. And so this chapter is going to announce the covenant that God makes with David that there will always be a descendant of David upon the throne. And as you read the story going forward, as we'll see today, um, we um, have much to learn and appreciate because of that covenant, right? That we relate to God through that, through Christ and who he is. And so I'm going to give you my outline here. There's not really an outline. There's just four observations. How about that? I'm going to give you the four observations. Uh, Before we begin, uh, you can write them down, take pictures of them, whatever you want to do. Ignore them, whatever. It's up to you. You have your own will. And so, uh, but I'm going to put these on the screen because I want you to see them. Then I want us to read the chapter and I want us to come back and look at them again and just ask ourselves the question, um, as we relate to God and the plans and the hopes and the dreams that we have for our life, how should I come humbly before that? What does that mean to come, well, Lord willing, we'll do this or that? Well, I think these, this chapter can maybe help us a little bit as we think about David and his example to us. So four observations. Number one is this. Um, the observations are our plans. Number one, the plans that God has for us are different than the plans that we have for ourselves. All right? If you were to sit down and have a magic pen and a magic journal and say, you know what, this is what the next 20 years of my life is going to be you would probably have a pretty awesome journal, I bet, right? There's a lottery winning in there. Maybe a rich uncle dies, leaves it all the money, whatever. However, the the wealth comes to you, you're comfortable. Everybody in your family is getting along. Everything works out fine, all right? It's all good. I don't imagine many of us would write too many tragedies into the journal if we had the magic pen and notebook. But um, if you read the Bible, if you live life very long, you know that the plans that God has for us are different than the plans that we would oftentimes have for ourselves. And coupled with that, not only are they different, but the plans that God has for us are better than the ones that we have for ourselves. Now, we have a hard time agreeing with that statement sometimes, that when God takes us on a detour, oftentimes detours involve pain and inconvenience, um, that oftentimes when we journey along those paths, those are better for us from God's perspective, but we don't feel like they're better in the moment. I've been listening through a study in John chapter 14 through 17 where, where Jesus is preparing just the night before he leaves his disciples. He's preparing them to go. And there's this chapter in or conversation in chapter 14 where Jesus is saying to his disciples, you know what, it's, it's better for you that I leave because then I'm going to send another counselor, another one. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And they just have a hard time wrapping their minds about, well, how could it ever be better that Jesus is gone? And they don't understand how the Spirit is not just going to be with them, but be in them. And so Jesus' plan for them was better then they would have had, they would have said, no, Jesus, you need to stay with us forever. But Jesus says, no, it's better if I leave because then the spirit will come. And so the plans that God has for us are different than the plans we have for ourselves. And the plans that God has for us are better than the ones that we have for ourselves. How about number three and four? I have a game of Plinko going on in the Christmas tree back here. Um, I don't know if you noticed that or not, but there's either a squirrel or a loose bulb, okay? I'm not sure. Um, I'm pulling for the squirrel just to make today fun. Um, Observations number three. Um, The plans that God has for us center on God's work in people more than places and things. 
We tend to make plans based upon things that are important to us, and things that are important to us tend to be places and things, right? It's physical things. It's things we can control. But when God looks at the biggest work he is doing, his biggest plans aren't about places and things. They're always about the work he wants to do in the lives of people. And so um, that is important. I think you'll see that in a second. Um, and lastly, and I double-starred this one because this is the most important one. You can forget the other ones if you want to, but this is an important one to remember as you read the text we're going to read. The plans that God has for us always, everybody say always, always revolve around King Jesus and his lordship. See, God does not make a plan for you that does not involve you coming to know him, serve him, submit to him, surrender to him, know him, be loved by him in a better and deeper way. Now, you and I have lots of plans that have nothing to do with Jesus, if we're honest, right? Um, but God's plans for us always revolve around King Jesus and his lordship because that's God's biggest goal is for the whole world to bow a knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. And so those four observations about our plans, um, I think are, are good things, but I wanted to read this chapter now. Um, we're just gonna walk our way through it. Um, it won't take too long. It's a pretty straightforward chapter, but 2 Samuel chapter seven um, says this, beginning in verse one. After the king was settled into his palace, all right, so David's been king for a while. He has, um, again, as I said before, subdued all the enemies. All the things are good. There's peace, there's wealth, there's prosperity, there's fame. All the things that if you were king, you would want are, are in place now. David's got things going well. And so he settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies around him. And so he says to Nathan the prophet, who is kind of his close counselor, he shows up in a couple of different places in the story, here I am living in a house of cedar, which is a good thing for him, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And so you find the seeds of a plan. David thinks, you know what, I, I, I've got this beautiful palace, but God and the ark of the covenants, remember back, if you go back in Exodus, that God instructed him after he gave him the law, said, I want you to build this tent for me, goat skins and all these things, his artistries and tapestries, and I want you to build this tent for me that we can just haul it, tear it down any day we need to, and we'll haul it to the next place, put it back up, and, and we'll just keep traveling around. Well, now they're in Jerusalem, they're no longer traveling around any deserts or anything like that. But in Jerusalem, the ark is now there, and there's this tabernacle, there's this tent that still sits there. And so David's looking and comparing his house to God's house, and he says, well, why am I living in such a palatial place? And God's house, God's presence is just living in a tent. And so verse 3, Nathan, without much conversation, seems to reply that, well, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And God has been with David in so many ways. And so David has come through so many things and there's so much going around in a good way that David has this wonderful plan. I'm just going to build this beautiful temple. And I don't think David's motives are bad. I don't think his intentions are evil. In fact, I think they are very, very good. I think David wants all the nations around to know that there is a great God in Israel. And so his desire to build this temple is not from selfishness. It's not from his own vanity. I think it is a lot of seeking the glory of God. 
Because if people come into town, you think, hey, who's the guy who lives in the tent? Well, that's our God. Well, that's not what the other nations did. They built beautiful things for their gods to live in. And so it was natural for David to think that way too a bit. And so all sounds good to David and Nathan, but there is one voice that has not been considered yet, and that is the Lord's voice. And so you move into verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this place. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So his basic questions are two, right? We've been doing it this way for a long, long time, and I never had a problem with it. I've never complained. I've never come to you and said, hey, uh, you need to build me a nice house now, okay? He's never asked that of them. And so his, his, his no is gentle, but it's firm. I've never asked of this. I didn't need this. I've gotten along. I've related well to my people um, through this. And so God then, in the conversation with Nathan that was related to David following, in verse 8, he begins a conversation in which God begins to outline, um, yeah, David, you want to do this for me, but I want to just remind you who's really in control here, who's really uh, got his hands on the wheel of this whole thing. And so in verse 8, you begin to see this, now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And I believe the word I, speaking of God, in the next few verses appears 23 times. God is very clear who is in control and whose deal this is. And it's not David, not, not, not angry at David, I don't think he hates David, but he's just reminding David that who's in charge here. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. So he reminds him of the past, and now he tells him of the future. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. And so he just reminds the past, remember David, why you're here, uh, just it's me and remember what in everything that happens in the future it's me it is God Lord God Almighty as we're going to see that name appear here in a few minutes um, is just completely all over this it's his work it's his power it's his grace at work in David's life and so in verse 11 it continues the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you and I underlined that on purpose because where did we start David says I want to build a house for God but what does God say? No, <laughs> I'm going to build a house for you. Again, an act of grace. Nothing has happened in this story that has just been reviewed of David's life has been because of David's merit or his worth. It's been because of God's grace at work in his life. And now God adds to that. He puts the icing on the cake by saying, not only have I made you king, I'm going to build you a house, not a physical house, but a house, a, a house that will last forever. And so the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build a house for my name. And so if you keep reading in the story, David doesn't build a temple, but Solomon builds a temple, his son, uh, who, will, who will follow him after David's death. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And so he gives them this picture, and some people use the analogy of a telescope to say, if you look through a telescope, you see things that are near, but you also see things that are farther away. And that's a little bit of what this prophecy, this covenant is about, is that, yeah, you see Solomon in the picture. Solomon's going to follow David, but Solomon's going to have some issues. And Solomon, by the end of Solomon's reign, his heart is going to turn from the Lord, and the kingdom's going to be taken partly from him, and it'll divide between north and south. And, and it will never be this grand, glorious thing like it was under David again. And so what you end up having is, is yeah, there's these, all these kings that are tied into David, but there's someone bigger down the road that, that continues to be in view through this telescope that's going to be a king who is going to sit on the throne forever. And so um, as you get through this, um, David then responds back to God. God says these incredible things. I'm going to make your family name last forever. You'll always be someone from the line of David. And so David then has a chance in these last uh, 11 verses or so, David responds to God. And I just want you to listen um, to his talk. It's not the talk of a proud king. It is the talk of a humble servant. And it's the prayer of a humble servant. You see, eight times in this uh, short prayer, David calls God, oh Lord God, sovereign Lord. It's the God who's over all. Um, in addition, David repeatedly extols his greatness and his sovereign choice of his people. Um, and 10 times David refers to himself, not as the king, which he had the right to do, but, but as your servant. And so I just want you to listen to the humility that David has before God when he thinks about the plans that God has for him. Chapter verse 18, chapter 7, verse 18. Then King David went and he sat before the Lord. It's just a picture of quietness, of surrender, of, of rest there. Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought us or brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servants. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who was like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever. He kind of turns it into a request now. God, you've made this promise. I just ask you to do it. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you have promised so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established in your sights. 
Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servants. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight, for you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be forever blessed, or blessed forever. And so you read this beautiful prayer. It's a prayer of praise, of acknowledgement, of humility, but of also petition, of asking God, do it. You've made these promises, now do what you've promised to do. And so let's go back to our observations we began with here. David begins this chapter with a plan. Uh, It's a plan that uh, if he was a prideful man, would have been offensive. He says, I want to build a temple for God. But God says, no, you're not going to build a temple. You will not do that for me. Uh, He could have been offended if pride was his driving motivation. And so when we talk about the plans that God has for us are different than the plans that we have for ourselves, or the plans that God has for us are better than the ones that we have for ourselves, certainly a prideful spirit would have bucked at this. It would have kicked back at this whole idea, well, well, I'm going to do this because there's a little bit of, that's going to glorify me if I build a temple for you too, right? But David doesn't have that. And so David is very humble before this idea that God has different plans for him. And they're better plans. And so uh, you see a humility in that. And so there's probably a little bit of a lesson that you and I can learn that when things come into our life that maybe are different than the plans that we had for ourselves, sometimes it can be hard to trust that God's new plans are better than the ones we had for ourselves. But a humble spirit keeps seeking God, keeps trusting God, even when there may be a, a journey that you didn't ask to take. But let's look at the third and fourth ones, right? Those are the key ones in this passage. The plans that God has for us center uh, on God's work in people more than places and things, right? And so you get this idea that that David wants to build a building. God wants to build a people. And, And you and I can sometimes get caught up in things like that. We can get really fixated on on things and, and, and places and, and, and forget that the biggest work that God ever wants to do is in the hearts of you and the people around you. And people and places and things, we tend to get those a little bit confused sometimes. And we put places and things ahead of people. But God always wants to be doing things in people. And places and things are much smaller in his priority list But last be that fourth one and the key one that we said that we we have to note that one. The plans God has for us always revolve around King Jesus and his lordship. We can never forget that one because everything that God is doing in this work in this world revolves around King Jesus. And so you continue to read in scripture, you get through David's life and you get into the prophets and and Israel's history and a lot of uh, dirty and messy times spiritually in their lives. But God continues to come back to this promise that someday a king will come. Someday a king will appear and he will rule over his people with righteousness and, and, um, and love, and he will shepherd them well. There are some examples of that. Listen to these verses from Ezekiel 37, verse 24 and 5, or 23 and 24. Um, it says, They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And then he finishes that with, My servant David will be king over them. 
And they will have all one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. And by the time Ezekiel writes this, David is well gone, right? He's hundreds of years in the past. And yet they're still looking for one like David to come. Jeremiah would echo that same thing. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign, reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In the days... In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Again, Jeremiah writes in a time when those places are almost gone. They're almost wiped out from war. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Isaiah, in these beautiful Christmas passages, would echo this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so the prophets echo this prediction, this covenant promise that God made to David uh, way back when. They echo the beauty of what his king, that King Jesus and what his kingdom will look like. And so you get to the time of Jesus, and, or the coming of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 33, um, the message given to Mary, that you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and we call the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You will conceive and give birth to a son. That's the same thing we just read. Sorry, that verse stopped there. Sorry, I, my notes messed up. Um, forgive me for that. Um, that was awkward. Romans chapter three, Jesus comes and he shows up. There's a squirrel back there in this messing got my mind distracted. Um, Romans one, verse three, you get through the life of Jesus and, and everything about Jesus has lots to do with David, right? He's continually echoing that. Romans one, three, says that Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. They continue to go back to that promise and, and just the idea that Jesus is this long-awaited king we have waited for. And finally get to the end of Scripture, the book of Revelation chapter 5, several places echoes this. But in verse 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And so you get this picture that, that Jesus is our king. And when you think about this statement that the plans God has for us always revolve around King Jesus and his lordship, that calls into question then as we kind of land the plane here. Well, so What? Jesus is king. That's great. Beautiful scriptures. We celebrate that at Christmas. That's a beautiful thing. God kept his promise. Hooray. But what does that mean for us? Well, if King Jesus is Lord, that means he has a kingdom. A king has a kingdom. And that kingdom has qualities that ought to be infecting and radiating from our lives. And the citizens of that kingdom bear a responsibility to produce the fruit of that kingdom. 
We read from Luke chapter 1 a few moments ago, and uh, some of you had posted on Facebook over the last few weeks, just when we get to December, there's a healthy thing that if you just take one chapter out of the Gospel of Luke and read it every day, by the time you get to Christmas Eve, you'll be at the reason the whole season is being celebrated is, is the story of Jesus. So I've been doing that. In the middle of this week in Luke chapter 3, I read the coming of John the Baptist, and as John shows up and he begins to preach... Um, the same message that Jesus would eventually preach, that repent, because this kingdom is coming, this kingdom is here, this new thing that God has been promising is coming. And I love this picture where John is at the river and he's baptizing people, and, and yet in the midst of, before he does that, he, he preaches this sermon to the crowd that's listened there in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, that's kind of a get grab your attention kind of thing. You losers. Well, if I was to open my sermon with that, um, you might not like that, but I'd have your attention, right? Uh, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. And here's the, here's the phrase, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, it's one thing to say, yeah, Jesus is king, but it's a very different thing to surrender to the king. To live in repentance as David has modeled for us. If you read back through David's prayer, it's just a simple prayer of repentance that God, you are great and this is all grace and and I'm nothing. I'm nobody apart from you and what you have done in my life. And so fruit should come from that kind of heart. And and so I love what um, Luke's version says because he goes on to finish his sermon. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we're Jewish people. We, we wear the right name, right? We bear the right marks on our bodies. We've got all the outward things and we know the right things in our minds. We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the logical question then in verse 10 to John is, okay, fine, what does it mean to produce fruits? And I love his answers because he doesn't go, well, there's this really tall mountain and a few of you that are really good can get there and, and you can pick the certain flower and it'll be perfect and there's these really hard things to do. He boils it down to the most basic of levels. Listen to what he says. What should we do then, the crowd asked. Well, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. So what's kingdom fruits? It's this compassion, it's caring, it's sharing of what you have. And anyone who has food should do the same. And I love how he eliminates all the excuses. Anybody can be a kingdom person. The fruit of repentance, the fruit of the kingdom. Uh, He goes on in verse uh, 12 to say this. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they ask, what should we do? Well, be honest, is the summary. Don't collect any more money than you're required to. And tax collectors had a habit of, of padding the account, of taking a little more than they needed to turn in because it benefited them. But he said, be honest in what you do. Then some soldiers asked him, well, what should we do? Well, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. All those simple things, he boils it down to a very heart level thing of how do I just respond to the most basic things in my life? You see, David, as we read his story in 2 Samuel 7, was a very blessed man. He knew that. He knew he was blessed. And people who live under the king in the kingdom as citizens of that kingdom 
know they are blessed as well. And that should reflect in the way that they treat other people. Is basically, you could summarize almost all of those. It's how do you treat people? And what do you do to people? Do you take advantage of them? Are they pawns to, to boost yourself? Or are they people for you to pour your life into in service? And John's answer to them was, fruit looks a lot more like pouring your life into the lives of others and taking care of people in a fair, honest, good, ethical way than taking advantage of them. It's a simple thing. It's a hard thing sometimes, but it's a simple thing. And I would just remind you of this little acronym that we have looked at from time to time around here, um, that every time I get frustrated with people, uh, every time I get frustrated with myself, I like this acronym because it boils it back down to what does it mean to really just go bless someone? And I'll put this up here again. It's the idea of B-L-E-S-S. Begin with prayer, right? Well, that's where it always begins is, God, I, I am so blessed by you. And there are people around me. I don't know who they are maybe yet, but I know there are people that I'm going to encounter every day and today that, that I can bless. And then you listen with care. Just listen to people. Take the time. Nobody listens to each other anymore. We're all just so angry and, and want to yell at each other. But listen. And then take the daring act to eat together. Serve with love. And then be, have the opportunity to share your story. And you'd be amazed at how quickly people are willing to listen when you have listened to them and you have eaten with them and you have served them with love. And so with that acronym in your mind, I, I think it was this morning's reading in Luke chapter 6, um, came to Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount and I would encourage you to read the whole chapter. The whole thing is about kingdom fruits. But I would just draw this out from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and following. When Jesus is preaching and he says this, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. So what does kingdom fruit looks like? Certainly means treating people better than they deserve. And it goes on to these crazy words. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And then he summarizes all of this with this beautiful statement. You've heard this. Do to others as you would have them do to you. He goes on. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. In other words, you don't have to be anybody special to do all those things. But if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. As I read that this morning, I thought, man, that's so hard to do. How do you do that? Well, with this BLESS acronym in mind, if someone's lending something from me, there's probably a need in their life, right? I don't borrow money unless I need something, right? Or borrow something if unless I need it. And so perhaps that whole acronym of beginning with prayer and listening with care and eating together and serving in those areas of need as you listen to people and you realize this is a need in their life, they're emotionally struggling, they're relationally struggling, they're physically, financially, whatever struggling, and I can do something about that. And so lend to them without expecting anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high. There's kingdom language, right? You'll be people of the, of the kingdom because he is kind, 
to the ungrateful and the wicked. And who are the ungrateful and the wicked? It's every one of us as we stand before God. And then he finishes, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. So what does that kingdom fruit look like? What does the kingdom citizenry of the Lord Jesus as our king look like? It looks a lot less like power grabbing, finger pointing, hate mongering, and it looks a lot more like do to others as you would have them do to you. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. I love how Paul summarizes it in Galatians 5. After he has gone through all the things that the kingdom and the spirit and all those things, the fruit of that is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's forbearance or patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it is gentleness, and it is self-control. So what do you do with that? God made a promise a long, long time ago, a thousand years before Jesus even, that a king would come. And this season, we celebrate the coming of that king. And if all we do to celebrate that king is we hang things on the wall, buy gifts for each other that we probably don't even need, really, all those things that we do, the festivities of the season, nothing wrong with any of them, but if that's all we do and our hearts aren't drawn to be more like the king's heart, and we have missed what it means to be a citizen of the king of kings' kingdom. And so I would just ask you today to look deep inside and just ask the question, does my life reflect those kingdom values? Would people look at me and say, oh, what a merciful person? <laughs> or would they look at you and say, I don't see any mercy at all in life in that life? Would they look at you and say, oh, they certainly treat others as they would want to be treated. Do they, they see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness? Do they see those just basic things at work? Because that's what kingdom living looks like and does as we look to our king who did so many of those things for us. And so I just pray that God would work in all of our hearts and draw us to celebrate and be changed and, and drawn into those kinds of hearts and lives. Would you pray with me, please?